If you have your Bibles, if you'd come with me to uh, John chapter 8 this morning, um, we're going to look at a, a, a very uh, unique uh, part of Scripture, and, uh, and I'm sure it's going to be encouraging to, to all of us. And so uh, John chapter 8, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verse 1 through 11, or actually starting at the end of uh, John chapter 7 this morning. So uh, let's pray together. Father, we, we come into your presence, Lord, already a heart. My heart has like been stirred, Lord, by just your love and your presence in our midst. And so, Lord, I worship you uh, this morning. And, and as we turn to your word, Lord, uh, Lord, help it not just be an information download, Lord, but a, a transformational experience, Lord, as we worship you with our intellect and as we worship you with our heart. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us. And, and Lord, that uh, I would just lift my own heart up to you, Lord, and say, help, uh, help being able to communicate in a way that's edifying, and Lord, that brings forth uh, growth in all of our lives, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Lord calls us to worship him with, with all of our heart, and we all certainly uh, love that. We love our emotions being stirred. Uh, in worship, but he also calls us to worship him with, with our mind also. And this text uh, before us this morning really calls forth that, that, that dual aspect of worship, to worship the Lord with all, all of our intellect, all of our mind, all of our soul, with all of our heart as, as we approach a text like this. Um, if you take a look at it, you're going to find that your text, if unless you have a King James version, your text is going to be bracketed, and it's bracketed with this footnote. It says the earliest manuscripts do not include this text. How many have that in their Bible? Yeah, almost all of you do. And so, how do we approach a text that's bracketed like that? Well, the first off, I want to say that that's not part of the original autograph. Okay, so that was placed there by folks that do, quote, textual criticism. And, it's, and this is the part of worshiping the Lord with our mind, is to be able to engage the text at, at, at the level of trying to understand and grapple with the transmission of the text from the original autograph. In other words, when the Apostle Paul, you know, uh, penned his letter to the churches from that original autograph to what we have today. And so it's, it's fair to say that none of us, are, are we have not yet discovered those original autographs, but what we have is a reliable transmission that with those first autographs or the first uh, uh, parchments that, that we do have are from about 150. And then you go on from there, and we have... Uh, the Sinaitic uh, Codex, uh, which was found uh, somewhere in the 1800s in, uh, uh, in, in Sinai, St. Catherine's Monastery, I'm trying to pull all this out, um, is basically a complete Bible. 
Old Testament Septuagint, New Testament Greek. And that was dated perhaps around 300 when Augustine the Great, uh, not Augustine, Const uh, Constantine the Great, perhaps initiated 50 copies of the Bible being made. And so the transmission of, a, of the text starts way, way, way back where it was first written and then goes all the way up to the first printing of the Bible, which was done in 1516 by Erasmus. And then after 50, 1516, 1522, 1516 was in Greek, 15, uh, 1522, a guy, um, another monk by the name of Luther writes the New Testament based upon Erasmus' work in German, and then what happens? All heaven breaks loose. Because then you have the Reformation come, and it was, it was done because of the intellect of Erasmus, who was taken to a monastery because both his parents died in a plague. And they take this man who is a brilliant, brilliant man who brings together all these original autographs, all the copies of the original autographs, puts them in Greek for the world to know, and the, that print goes out and ends up being uh, put in somewhere around 15, Steve might help me, 1536 Tyndale publishes the first uh, English, English translation of the Bible. 1526, thanks. Uh, what we have is that truth that Erasmus discovered, which Martin Luther put in his thesis, theses, was that we're not saved by works, but we're saved by how? Faith through grace. So we're saved by the grace of the Lord and not by works. And so you have that step-by-step that -step transmission of the text till we get to what the modern translations that we're using now. Just let me say parenthetically that... Uh, uh, there's many churches that are King James only because when they, when they took a look at what some of the liberal scholars are doing today, they said, we don't want to have anything to do with textual criticism. We're just going to stay with the King James Bible. And I appreciate that, except we have many discoveries that have come forth, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, that have helped only verify and, and affirm what we have. And so this, tech, this text note we have is not entirely accurate because when we look at the woman caught in adultery, we know from the early church fathers as er, from one Eastern um, uh, uh, parchment that they've discovered as early as 150, they have this text as, as part of the New Testament. Matter of fact, I'm sorry, if you're a first-time visitor, we, we don't do these educational lectures, but there's, there's no way to get at this other than to worship God with our mind. <laughs> we'll get to the emotions in a minute, and I'll stir you, and you're, oh, yes, I, you know, oh, I love you, Pastor Ed, yes. Right now you're saying, you know, I've done this, been there, I'm out. <laughs> but uh, even... Uh, some of the greatest scholars, which I still use today, 
F.F. Bruce says this, quote, the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material question of historic fact or Christian faith and practice. And F.F. Bruce is one of the guys that says, well, you know, I believe this text is accurate. It's placement I have a problem with. So when we look at these things, I, I want to encourage you. I know pastors take different tracks on this. I want to encourage you never to become intellectually disengaged because whatever, whatever curiosity you have, and that's a really good word, whatever curiosity you have, I know this, the word of God will not only answer your curiosity, but you will become fervent in your faith and resolved, resolute even, that what we have before us today is the word of God. And so when we come to John chapter 8, my read is we have what John wanted us to have. And that when we look at John chapter 8, and we put it in its context, it adds to the flow and it unifies both chapter 7 and chapter 8. And the reason it does that is because the focus of 7 and 8 has to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was, is all about, I'll summarize the Feast of Tabernacles with one word, grace. It's about the Lord's provision for his people in the wilderness to satisfy their thirst to satisfy their hunger. And the Feast of Tabernacles was an acknowledgement of God's intervention in the people's lives. This text is an illustration of grace. It's about an illustration about the children of Israel forsaking the living water and because of that not experiencing all that God had, to, had for them. And so the Feast of Tabernacles becomes this unifying this unifying uh, moment in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Let me illustrate that quickly in a minute or two, and then we'll get to, we'll walk through the text. So the Feast of Tabernacles, when we look at John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, talking about how 8, 1 through 11 unifies and is part of the flow and not something that's accidental. It's providentially there because God wants us to know these truths. So when we come to 737 on the last day of the feast, and the feast's name is what? Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Boots, Sukkot. It is on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now we know on the last day of the feast, they didn't have that, that water ritual and in the midst of the prayer, but no water being poured out, Jesus stands up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow what? Please note, write yourself a note to remember that phrase, rivers of living water. And Jesus writes to, not writes to, he speaks to, religious people. You and I, you and I are religious people. We love Jesus with all of our heart, but you know, we're religious people. And you know, when we come to narratives like this, it's important that we not dismiss it and say, oh, that's not us. No, this is us. 
Jesus would be speaking to us today, maybe not in the same, on the same issue, but he'd be speaking to our hearts. And the problem here is found in, in chapter 7, the end of verse 28. Jesus says to these religious people, you're doing all these rituals, but you do not know me. You do not know me. There's people in this room. There's people listening at home. How you doing? Still our largest audience, but we're making, we're, we're catching up to you. There's people in this room. There's people watching. You say you're a Christian, but you do not know God. Why? Because you haven't experienced him in your heart. You don't know those rivers of living water. You don't know the peace of God. You, you, you think that maybe if, maybe if I'm good enough, 1 John 5.13 says this, these things are written, the Bible is written, so that you might, what? Know that you have eternal life. And my job as a preacher boy is to bring you to that place where you might today say yes to the Lord and invite him into your heart, invite him into your life so that you might know that your sins are forgiven and that you are secure in him as you abide in him. You are secure in him as you abide in him and so that you might know that you have eternal life. It's a unifying, brings us into seven. If you remember, they had the water uh, rituals at the Feast of Tabernacle, but they also had these four large, amazing 70-foot lampstands. The people, the temple was up on a mount. The people were below. They felt that these huge, what we would use today, maybe you could understand it like this, they had four huge searchlights. Now, someone's going to take that out of context and write me a note. It says, Conway, they never had searchlights. Matter of fact, they didn't have electricity. They do that. They had these four huge searchlights on the mount that illumined the town. And we, we come to, come with me to John chapter 8 now and see how it all fits together because of the because of the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am what? I am the light of the world. I'm the living water. I'm the light of the world. 1 through 11, what we find is that transitional piece where Jesus, that day finishes up. The people go home. Jesus comes back to the temple court and we have this story, the woman caught in adultery. I've not mentioned in this talk, but two weeks ago I told you, where did Jesus talk to the people during the Feast of Tabernacles? In the court of the women. There were men in there. It was, it was one step in from the court of the Gentiles. And why is that important to note? Well, there's a woman here. And Jesus is talking to religious people. One last thought before we get to the text. Who are you in the text? Who are you? 
Because that's the transformational moment. That's where the text no longer becomes a narrative on printed page, but begins to enter our heart of hearts. I'll tell you who I am and have been in this text. I'm that woman caught in adultery. I'm that woman, unless Jesus saved me and rescued me, I'm dead. Before I came and accepted Christ as my Savior, I was dead in my sins and destined for destruction. I'm that woman. I'm that scribe. Yeah. I'm the scribe. I'm the Pharisee. I'm the person that knows the word of God, but doesn't always apply it to his life. Can I have one amen? Oh, whoa, wait, whoa, wait a minute. Don't get carried away. I hope that amen was directed at yourself. <laughs> I, I'm that scribe and Pharisee. Just having fun with you, Linda. Sorry. I'm that scribe of Pharisee. I'm that Nicodemus who's still wavering, but has courage to speak justice, the word of justice. I'm that, I'm that temple guard who is like, whoa, no one ever talked like this. No one ever taught. No one ever taught. Who are you? Because when you, when you identify that, you can identify what God wants to do in your life today. I'd like to say we could all say, I'm like Jesus. I'm like Jesus. I... <laughs> this guy's carried away here, folks. I ain't Jesus. Let's get that straight. I like him in some ways. I'd like to be more like him, and I hope you do it too. Because he, Romans 8, 29, that's my destiny, isn't it? Is that your destiny? It's my destiny. I want to be that person that when someone's caught in their sin, doesn't hammer them, but says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want to be that person like Jesus who addressed the lady with tenderness and kindness by saying woman, just like he did to his mother. Who are you in the text? Come with me to the text. You say, finally. <laughs> All right. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and he taught them. That's my Jesus. He sits, he talks, I believe because it's set in thematically the Feast of Tabernacles. He's in the court of the women and he's teaching the people and the scribes and the Pharisees hatch a plot. Come back to the text, verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. What's the problem with this text? Is that it, I know this is all PG, don't worry, take a deep breath. It takes two to tango, right? 
And literally, the text talks about in order for there to be an arrest, the ESV like really kind of downplays the the scenario here. So these scribes and Pharisees, it's a setup. They set this woman up with this man. They physically watch them have sex. They barge in. They arrest the lady. They bind her. They drag her out. And they throw her at Jesus' feet while conveniently the guy gets lost. No justice, for one. No justice. That's the first thing. Back to the text. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. We've already covered that. Verse 5. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Well, the first thing I say is that when a religious person quotes scripture, you better look it up. Because they bend it and twist it. And when you look at Deuteronomy 22, I think it's 22 to 24, somewhere around there, there's no mention of stoning. They just want to get Jesus to a place. There's a mention of death, but it has to do with the man and the woman. Yeah, how convenient. Do we do that? See, this is, you want transformation in your life. Do we do that? Do we modify, let's see, yeah, we'll use nice language. Do we modify our search for a translation that removes our conviction? Like instead of using, you know, we come to a set of verses that we don't particularly like, well, let me try the new living advanced you know, full of grace translation. Or do, we, or do we let the conviction rest in our heart that brings forth the fruit of repentance? They twisted. Come back to the text. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Why? There's three aspects to this little thing. One is, Only the Romans could execute someone. So was Jesus going to violate Roman law by telling the Jews to to execute her? Secondly, was Jesus going to violate the law of Moses? And probably more importantly in those days, as in these days, adultery ain't no big deal. What you don't see, don't talk. And what, the, what they were setting was not a test, but a what? A trap. And Jesus, you got to love him. I love him. Hope you love him. Jesus shifts the focus. Look at the text closely. Jesus shifts the focus off of the woman onto himself. He, draw, he draws them to himself creates space. They're no longer looking at the woman. Now they're looking at Jesus. There's a great truth there. He is the sin bearer. He does take our affirmities and our afflictions upon himself. He is our kinsman redeemer. And he stoops, 
Look at the text with me. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, you know, there's a lot of commentaries out there, but I've never met a commentary better than the Word of God to perhaps give an insight into what he wrote. I've read some masterpieces. He wrote out the Ten Commandments. <laughs> like that would matter to them. He wrote their names. He wrote their sins out. Take a look with me at two verses from Jeremiah that help give insight into perhaps at least what Jesus was trying to do or speak to their heart. In Jeremiah 2.13 Jeremiah issues a warning that the people have forsaken something. They are forsaking something, the Lord, and they would die. I asked you to underline, make a note of a phrase. Did anybody remember what that phrase was from the beginning? Living water. Okay, so hang on to that. Because that that's a key that's going to unlock it for us. Jeremiah... 2.13, for my people have committed two evils. This is Jeremiah confronting the people. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns, water containers, in the ground for themselves broken cisterns that can hold what? No water. The Feast of Tabernacles is about what? It's about having living water. Jeremiah 7.13 brings it home. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of what? Living water. When Jesus writes in the ground with his finger, it's more conceivable to me that he mentioned Jeremiah and the Feast of Tabernacles and pointed to himself once again is that you have forsaken me, you have forsaken the Lord, you don't know the Lord, and you've forsaken living waters. And so he gives the invitation to grace. He says to them, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The, the woman caught in adultery is another way of Jesus issuing a call of radical grace to these religious leaders. It's what he's doing in our hearts today. Would you trust Jesus? Would you come to him? Would you give him your life? If you're thirsty, there's only one requirement. Just come. Just come as you are. You don't need to fix your life, clean up your life. You just need to come. Come back to the text with me. And as they continue to ask him, now Jesus, he stands up and says to them again, Jesus is, Jesus is drawn 
all the attention to himself because he's the answer. Taking all the pressure off of the woman. Can you imagine the women? Woman? Can you imagine what's in her heart? I can. It'd be like, go Jesus. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, I never really saw that before this morning earlier. Did Jesus recite Jeremiah to them? I don't know. I don't know. It's fun to think about it, isn't it? What would you have said? What do you say to people caught in a sin? But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Some great lessons here for relating to people that are caught in sin. Have you ever been caught in sin? Two. You ever been caught in sin with your spouse? Not in sin with your spouse, but by your spouse? Ever been caught in sin by a friend? Ever been caught in sin? Someone's walking by your computer and caught? How do we relate to people that are caught in sin? Look what Jesus does. There's no manipulation. There's no anger. There's compassion and kindness. He, he recognizes that he's speaking to a person. He recognizes that he's speaking to someone's daughter. He recognizes that he's speaking to someone that could have made better choices in their life, and so he calls her woman. Same thing he called his mother. There's something redemptive about recognizing a person's presence in your midst rather than railing against what's not right. Secondly, he asked her, where are your accusers? And she said, no one, Lord. Now, I choose to, you can look at it differently. I choose to see this whole thing as prevenient grace. Grace that precedes. Grace that invites. Grace that woos. Because we don't see the women, like, converting. And we don't see Jesus saying, you're forgiven. What we see is space and grace to respond. No pressure.
just, I see who you are. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Because Jesus, John chapter 3, came not to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. What did Jesus come for? There you go. How do we relate to our neighbors? And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, from this moment, sin no more. That's the invitation for you today. If you don't know Christ. It's to receive his grace. Grace that proceeds. Grace that has wooed you. <laughs> to come to a church with no steeple, no cross, no smells. I do like the smells, by the way. No bells. I do like the bells. It's a crazy little Irish preacher. Grace has come to you. He's wooed you to a place to trust Jesus with all your heart, all your life, all your soul, all your mind. He's wooed you to that place because he loves you just like he loves this woman, just like he loves all the scribes and Pharisees and soldiers that are just beyond their mind at how Jesus spoke grace in a way they never expected it. Now, I don't know what happens to this woman. I wish I did. I wish I knew the end of the story. But today, you can know the end of the story in your own heart. And that's by asking Christ to come into your heart, even if you're at home, to ask him to come into your heart, into your life, to forgive you your sins. Because with Jesus, there's grace. And his grace is a mighty and powerful grace. Say amen. We're going to share the Lord's table this morning.